You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Your work of love, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Heavenly Father, we come before You as a church this morning, God, as Your church, and we come in humility. The best we can, Lord, we come in humility. And Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would be amongst us. And Holy Spirit, we welcome You here amongst us and we ask You to prick our hearts with conviction of sin. We ask You to illuminate the Scripture that we might have understanding. We ask You to empower the speaking and the preaching of Your Word, Spirit, beyond that which I am capable of. Lord, I confess I am not worthy to preach your word. And I stand here, my only hope, just as in salvation, just as in sanctification, but also in whatever ministry and the working of your spirit through me, I stand here and my only hope is the righteousness of my Savior, King Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Letter from Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church at Thessalonica. This is a church that is not a very old church. Uh, We find its founding in Acts 17. And the thing about this church being the model church that we're going to talk about this morning, that's the the title of this message is the model church. we find it as being a standout church in that all of the other letters that we read from Paul to churches that either he founded or that one of his cohorts has founded, young churches that Paul is writing to, the epistles that we all read and study and and know so well, there are some scathing rebukes in letter after letter after letter. Paul wasn't scared about uh, saying something that would harm his popularity. Uh, He wasn't nervous about getting voted out as an apostle or or losing a a big tither 
because of an offensive message. He said what the Lord laid on his heart plainly and was sometimes uh, hard. He's writing this letter from Corinth, we believe, that was founded on a second missionary journey. We know about two letters. I think there was a third letter and maybe even a fourth letter that went to the Corinthians. We have two canonized. Uh, he deals with the church at, uh, at Corinth with gross immorality. Drunken debauchery is, is just plainly spoken of in his letter. Sin so in the face of the society that when someone became uh, very sinful in an obvious way openly in society, it became to be known as being Corinthianized. This was a vile city, and the sin of that city had either worked its way into the church or was there from the very beginning as those people of God got saved, were born again. They had a tough time letting go of some of that. Taking the Lord's Supper in, in a grotesquely sinful fashion. He deals with that in that letter. When he writes to the Galatians, he confronts false teachers that were from within that church, probably elders from what I studied and read. He has to defend his own apostleship, and so he's being confronted by church members in the Galatian area. Now, the Galatians weren't, that wasn't just one single church. That was written to a group of churches in an area uh, called Galatia. It would be something like a, what we would think of as a county. We know that Paul founded several churches on the southern end. Now, we don't know who, the, who all got that letter from the Galatia, or to the Galatians, but it was meant to be circulated in that area. So certainly, some of these churches were founded by Paul. He calls them fools. He says, oh, you foolish Galatian, who has bewitched you? Some, just some scathing, harsh language to these churches. Talks about spiritual warfare in Galatians. And so there was a demonic presence that was obvious. And he was worried about that demonic presence. Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, probably began by Priscilla and Aquila, who were faithful friends of Paul personally. And so these people, first generation, second generation, I guess, from the apostles. The apostles learned from Christ himself. And then there was a next generation that learned from the apostles. Priscilla and Aquila were in that group. They were the first ones probably to bring the gospel at Ephesus. That church was later pastored by Timothy. So it was a, it was a, a secure, sound church for the area. False teachers were probably elders in that congregation. He, they taught things like forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods. They preached about myths and endless genealogies that Paul has to combat against those things. Thirty years later, when John the Revelator wrote those letters to the churches as if they the very words of Christ Himself, when you read those letters, He he. He writes one of those letters to Ephesus, and he says, you've left your first love. There are threats in those letters that says, you're going to cease to be a church if you don't repent of this sin. 
That's a letter to the Philippians. Now, it's not as bad as some of the others, but there's warnings against legalism. There's warnings against lawlessness, living, living in a way where, whereby the, the, the grace of God has, has, has moved to a, a place that's not right, a sinful place in my heart where I just think I can live any old way I want to. That's not what grace is. He writes to the Philippians. He exhorts them to be courageous. And so there was a... There were some real issues in these first century churches. In fact, when John the Revelator wrote those seven letters to the churches, five of those letters were harshly worded letters to the churches. Now, these churches at the time were 60 or 70 years old, I think. And so they were established churches, established not by just some Johnny-come-lately either. These were, these were apostle, founded by apostles or first-generation learners from the apostles. These were, these were churches who had no doubt set under the soundest of teaching, had set under the purest eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus' teaching and His resurrection. These were churches who... I'm almost scared to say it because it, there's, there's something that's not right about this statement, but I look at that and I think, well, they had a better chance than I do of living right. And yet, letter after letter, Paul's got to deal with all this stuff, and five of those churches out of the seven were just total rebukes. Two of them had some positive things. But then we have Thessalonica. The model church. And about the harshest thing that these three men, Paul being the main author, but certainly he includes Timothy and Silas. Silvanus is, or Silvanus is also Silas in Scripture. Uh, he, he includes all of them. He, when he says we and us and our, that's including those other two men in there. But certainly Paul is the main, he's the inspired author here. And about the harshest thing he can come up with for this church at Thessalonica is, you're doing real well, keep doing better. Don't, don't stop growing. That's about the hardest thing he's got for them. And so we find this as a model church. I have to ask the question in my heart, maybe out of a sinfulness, maybe out of sinful pride, because I find myself a failure in a lot of ways. Trying to be spiritual, I find myself, you know, and, and I've shared this maybe more recently than ever in my life, the deeper I study into a text, I go there expecting to understand that text better, but what, what ends up happening is the Lord reveals a bunch of sin in my heart. And, and, and I suspect very strongly that that's part of understanding Scripture. But it can't, I can't seem to wrap my mind around, this is going to happen again, Mick. If you get in there, this is not going to be pleasant. It seems to surprise me. It's kind of like the weather surprises me every year. It starts getting cold and I'm shocked. And what in the world's going on out there? Well, it happens every year, dummy. Every year, about the same time, you've got to deal with the same weather patterns changing. I should be able to wrap my heart around this concept. 
And so, so, so maybe it's out of that confusion that I, that I ask myself, well, did, did these folks have it better than me? Did they have it easier than me? We've already talked about these other churches that, that are receiving these rebukes from Paul. They sat under apostles. They sat under first-generation teachers that learned from the apostles. We know that they had sound doctrine given to them. We know that they had the finest of leadership. I mean, who could, be a better, who could be a better elder in your church than the Apostle Paul, Silas, Timothy? Were the Thessalonians just born with a spiritual silver spoon in their mouth, so to speak? Did they just have it easy? Was it not much affliction facing them, or were they not faced with much? I'll take you to Acts chapter 17 where we find the founding of the church. And I'll read this to you. Now, when they had passed through, and, and, and this is the Apostle Paul, when they had passed through uh, Am, Amphipolis and Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica and where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob to set in an uproar and attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so what we have here is not only the, not only the lost folks, but the church leaders, the Jews and the Gentiles. These Jewish church leaders in this city, now, now what I'm trying to do is, is establish a fact here that these Thessalonians this church was founded in a city that did not receive it. Uh, they weren't born into a silver spiritual spoon in their mouth. Not only did the Gentiles attack them, not only did they take them before the council and say, hey, these men are claiming that there's another king over Caesar, it's causing up trouble, but the, but the spiritual leaders, the Jews, the leaders in the synagogue, they went to the pool hall and gathered up some ruffians and brought them back and said, hey, rough these guys up a little bit. We can't because that'd be sin. That's what they said. I'd bet money. Well, that'd be sin too, wouldn't it? They went and got some ruffians and brought them back and said, rough these guys up a little bit. They're causing trouble. We're going to run them out. And so that's where this church was founded. Thessalonica became known as the Mother of Macedonia, 
It was the, the capital city. There was not only a major port there that exploded the commerce and wealth and productivity of this city uh, financially, it also attracts the political stuff because that's where it would be like the, you know, what's going on in New York City for us or, or Los Angeles or New Orleans. It's a, it's a bustling place full of a lot of people because there's commerce there and there's political power there. There's money there. Not only was it a port, there was a major land highway that went through there. So they were trafficking the goods that were being manufactured, the textiles that were being, that were being made in, in surrounding cities were coming right through there to the port for shipping. And so in Paul's day, there was about 200,000 people there. This was a bustling metropolis. Now, practically speaking, we all know what happens when you gather a bunch of sinners together. Huh? You know, I have a tendency to think, here's, here's what leads me to that. I have a tendency to think that, that our world is, is uh, that sin is worse today than it was in Bible times, for instance. But that's not true. Uh, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Sin is sin. It's the same old sins we're facing from the garden until now. One thing is true, though. There's more sinners here. And so you get more sinners gathered up together. There's more sin happening. So this group of people, the Thessalonians, the church at Thessalonica, was a small group of saved, born-again believers raised from the dead to newness of life in a sea of sinfulness. A city that hated them. It was the same in the days of this church as it is today. Have you ever noticed this? It's okay to say, I believe in God. Nobody really has a problem with that. But if you start preaching the actual gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that confronts that person's sin, it becomes very offensive. They're no longer open to your message at all. So there is a... There's a, there's a truth to grab a hold of here that when we say that the church in Thessalonica was a model church, and when we get into this text that we just read here and, and begin to break it down, this is not an easy living situation. These people had the same, faced the same sins, the same temptations, the same hostile environment that you and I face. Maybe worse. And yet, we find these three men of God giving thanks for these people at this church with nothing harsh to say. Let's look at it. First of all, this was a justified praise. Look at verse 2 and 3. We, gave thanks, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, 
your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. This was a saved church. Do you realize that there are... What is the church? The ecclesia. It's the gathering of the saints. It's the equipping station of the saints. And so when we say the church, we are supposed to be talking about born-again believers who are covenanting together as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. When Mark stood up here and, and said, if, if you haven't spoken with an elder, we, we would ask you not to take part in the Lord's Supper. That's because in taking part of that Lord's Supper, we are saying as a church, I see the fruits of the Spirit of God in you. I trust that you are a brother in Christ. I see Him living through you. And I expect you to rebuke me if you see me in my sin. I expect that the Lord is going to give you eyes to see when I am sinning. And I, and I beg you to rebuke me in that and correct me in that. I expect, brother, when I take this supper with you, I expect, brother and sister, that the Lord is going to give you eyes to see when I need encouraged. And I invite that encouragement from you. Not because... Not because we have a, a tremendous amount in common socially or our background, but because of this one thing. I believe the Spirit of God dwells in you. And I trust Him. And so this is a justified praise. Paul is saying, we see, we're looking at you and we see the fruits of the Spirit of God in you. We see that you're saved people. These men and Paul were justified in praising their accomplice. It, it, it was an encouraging word to the church from an apostle. Can you imagine? It was an, an exhorting word to the church from an apostle. That was a big deal back then too. I mean, there was only 12 of them. It's not only a justified praise. These folks were beloved and chosen. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. This was a sanctified church. If I jump forward to chapter 2, verse 13... It says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but it is what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in your believers. This was a sanctified church. These men of God recognized and praised this church and said, we see, not only do we see that you're saved, we see that God's working in you, that you're sanctified that He loves you, that He has chosen you. You are the elect. We recognize this about you. And we're lifting you up and encouraging you and saying, keep it up. This is a model church in Thessalonica. Not only was this a justified praise and that these were the beloved and chosen, they're model soul winners. Let me stop right there for just a second. I've been asking myself, as I studied this, and, and I brought it up in the 
budget meeting we had this morning, here's what I was asking myself as I went through this. Because if this is a model church, if, if we wanted to say, okay, we want to, if, if there's a church in Scripture that we want to mimic, this would be the one. And so it's caused me to start asking myself, what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do we want to be? There's something that I notice in this that I'm just going to go ahead and point out, even though we're not through it. There's, there's nothing is said about the number of people. There's nothing said about a program that they had involved themselves in. There's nothing that's said about the, the, the tithe that was collected on Sunday morning. What is said is they're model soul winners. Look at verse 5 and 6 along with me. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and imitators of the Lord. And here's an important word. For you received. We don't always receive the word. Sometimes it bounces off of me. But Paul says here, you received what was preached to you. And you became imitators of me. Imitators of the apostles. Imitators of the Lord. They were evangelizers. Paul was there evangelizing. So to say that this church began to imitate him, what, would, what did he do? He went there and loved them. He went there and loved them enough to confront their sin in the midst of a politically charged mob, he confronted their sin. And people were born again. This was a strategic church. Third generation imitators. It was a justified praise. These folks were beloved and chosen they were model soul winners. It was a strategic church there. Not only those things, but this was a church of good reputation. Look at the last, beginning in the last half of verse 6 and on through verse 8. You became imitators of God and of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. These apostles, this apostle and his, and his two men that traveled with him, they didn't have to bring up the testimony of Thessalonica. He's saying, hey, we go there and they start talking about you to us. We don't have to bring you up. And what was it that the scripture said? the Scripture said that their testimony went out before them, that their testimony of God having birthed them anew came through affliction. They were saved in the midst of affliction and they received that word being pounded with affliction. They received that word, how? In the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing, see, that, that made them their testimony. I mentioned uh, 
I don't know, one time from this pulpit, I mentioned Henry Blackaby. And I said, and I know that I said that day that I'm not sure I agree with everything Henry Blackaby preaches and teaches, but that one thing, and if I remember right, what I had mentioned was the crisis of belief. Well, here's something I disagree with. And it comes wholeheartedly from this text right here. This is where the Lord taught me this, is this. There... There was a Henry Blackaby kind of way of thinking, and it's and this is a predominantly preached in churches all around us, right here in Stevens County. And that is this. Well, look here. If you if you think God's in something and you give it a try for a little while and it's not working, well then God's not in that. Move on. Well, I I can I can kind of see where they're coming from. I can I can kind of see a splinter of truth in that, but here's my issue with it. My sinful heart says God's not in it if He's not making me comfortable. You see, these people were in the midst of affliction. They weren't comfortable. God wasn't blessing them with ease of life and vacation time. No, He blessed them with an ability to live in the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of affliction. So, as Paul's looking back at this, if, if he's not going to say, well, it's not working out here. So we're, we're doing something wrong. We're going to change the way we're doing things because we're, this is not working. No, he was a mature believer. And a right way of thinking is, God was blessing it. And the way we know that God is blessing it, because I see people getting saved. I see people being changed. I see people being born again. I see common folks coming from a pool of sinners who are being afflicted, but they're, but they're living out in the joy of the Holy Spirit. God is in this. It has nothing to do with the external circumstances. It has to do with that internal change that can only come from the Spirit of God indwelling someone. They were born again. Their testimony was a trust in God. This was a suffering church. I confess to you I confess to you that as I continually ask myself what kind of church do we want to be? It's hard for me to say, Lord, we want to be a suffering church. That's what we want. That's hard. I, I, I don't know if I can say that. I don't know if I can honestly say before the Lord, Lord, I want to suffer. I want to, I want to suffer and I want this church to be a suffering church. But I must be willing to recognize, as Paul preached to them, we will be in affliction. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand that. There will be affliction. We will be afflicted. But God's grace is sufficient. I must be willing to recognize that these external circumstances are temporary. Not only... 
Not only was this praise justified, this was a saved church, and they were beloved and chosen, this was a sanctified church, they were model soul winners, this was a strategic church, and this was a church of good reputation, it was a suffering church, and then lastly, salvation in its proof. This was a second coming church. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Oh, let me get back to my chapter. Beginning in verse 9. For they themselves reported concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we see in that statement, faith and repentance and hope. This was the second coming church. They were waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. So if I say, what kind of church do we want to be? We want to model ourselves after the church at Thessalonica. We want to be a second coming church. We want to, we want to have hope in the return of our King to deliver us ultimately from sin and hurt and death. I have been delivered. The Lord speaks of my salvation, my sanctification, and my glorification as if it has already occurred. Those are all verbs in the past tense when I read through Ephesians 2. And so I know that I know that I know that this is a done deal. And yet, in the now, if I want to say, what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do we want Meridian Church to be? We want to be a second coming church. I want us to have a, a hope for the return of our King. Coupled with that is a hope for new salvation, right? That's why he tarries. There are elect on the earth, maybe elect that are yet unborn, that he's waiting for. He's not going to lose one. He's promised to build his church. He's promised he won't lose one. That's why the tarry. That's why he left us here to evangelize and to be his church. That's why he left us here to, to learn and to prepare for what it's going to be like in heaven. That's a lot of what church is. That's a lot of what serving the Lord is. Is, is I'm, I'm getting myself ready to be in a church service for eternity. You know, have you ever heard somebody say that? Uh, you talk about going to heaven, but you gripe if I preach past noon. You're not going to care much for heaven. Now, I say that jokingly. Let, let me say this, and I'm... I'm keeping track of time. I don't know if y'all know it or not, but I have the record for the longest sermon ever in this church for as long as Josh has been here. Do y'all know that? As I try to in my apprenticeship, I'm trying to be a more disciplined preacher, and I, th I thought maybe it'd be good if I preached the shortest and the one in the middle too. That'd be some real discipline if I could get that done. Here's uh, something to consider. What kind of church do we want to be? In 
my biblical manhood and womanhood course that we've been going through. We've, we've spent a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 5. And that scripture says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. Of course, he's quoting from Genesis 2. Therefore a, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects the husband. And so Paul is saying this is a mystery. And, and this is something, what he means by that is this is something that has yet to be revealed. This is not something from the Old Testament that I'm quoting. I'm saying he's expounding is what he's doing. He's, a, he's, a, he's an expositor and he's expounding on this verse of Scripture from Genesis and he's saying, I'm telling you something new here. I'm going to reveal a new mystery that this Scripture, even though it applies to husband and wife, is ultimately a depiction of Christ and His church. Now, I don't, I don't think as I, as I meditate on what kind of church do we want to be because l- let me encourage you. Let me be an encouragement to you. As, as someone who, and especially in my younger days, I kind of made a, a name for myself locally as being a guy that would fill the pulpit for, for a preacher that was gone. And so there was, a, there was a little season of life when I was younger that, uh, man, I preached in a lot of churches around here. And... Man, I've preached in some lousy churches. I mean, I, I really hate to say that, Mark. It's a, it's a ridiculous thing to stand up here and say because I've been in Southern Baptist churches. I've been in churches 100% of the time whose doctrinal statements, more than likely, line up exactly with what I believe and preach. But I've been, you know, Michelle and I went to a church one time, walked in there, sat down on the front row, we sang, I got up, preached a sermon, sat down and left, and not a soul in there ever spoke to either one of us. <laughs> We've been to some rude churches. I've been to, uh, one little man always comes to my mind, uh, stopped me after church, and he was, a, he was a belligerent little mean man, and everybody in town knew it. Stopped me after church and said, uh... Noticed you didn't preach from King James this morning. Uh, when you get back tonight, you make sure you got your King James. You know, I thought, you little. Let me be an encouragement to you. Here's what happens when I preach here. It brings a, it brings a fear on me and a respect for this congregation. Because I know in my heart that the people sitting in this congregation, they know Scripture. And they know correct doctrine. And they chase after the Lord. They seek righteousness. This is a group of people right here, this congregation, that I see the fruits of the Spirit of God in. I see you living out these things. I see you be corrected. I see that you're teachable. And, and I confess, and this is a good thing. I, I mean, this is a good confession. I confess that when I'm preparing, I think to myself, you better, you better get this right. Because if you say something stupid, these people are going to know it. And I'll be honest, I've been in a lot of churches where it wouldn't have mattered what I said. They'd have never known any different. As long as I didn't go past noon. 
as long as I preach from the right Bible or whatever. So let that be, let that be an encouragement to you that I recognize that about you. And let me exhort you to see something in here that, that I have not seen before. And I don't believe I'm over-spiritualizing this when I say this. The real encouragement here is for Paul and Silas and Timothy. Even though these men, even though he's writing this church and saying, Praise God for you. And I never stop giving thanks because I see God in you. I see that you're saved. I see that you're sanctified. I see that you have a mission mind and, a, and an evangelical heart. I see these things in you. But really, what it, the whole letter is, I was so worried about the place that you were in. I was so worried because I know what Thessalonica is. And I know how those men treated me when I preached at the synagogue. And I know the things that you're facing because I see all these churches facing them. And I was worried about you. And, and I got to a point, and you see the love. You see the love that, that not only Paul, but all of these men have. In verse 2, says, we give thanks. In, verse, in chapter 2 and 7, says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. He has a, has a motherly affection where he, he, he has... Think about the way you are with your children. You'd give your life for your child. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, like a father. So not only was he willing to nurture and comfort and nurse like a mother, he had the, he had the, the guts to exhort and correct and, and discipline like a father. But out of his love for these people, out of his love for these people. He loved this church. He loved these people. In, in chapter 2 and verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that you received the Word as the Word of God. He, he had a love for these people and he was so encouraged that he saw them doing right and being changed by God. He was so worried that he said, when I could stand it no more, when my anxiety about your status, your state, was more than I could bear, I was willing, Silas and I were willing to be left alone at Athens and send Timothy. Timothy, go check on them. Go see if they've fallen away. Please don't let our preaching be in vain. And Timothy comes back, and that's when he writes this letter, and he says, praise God, Timothy came back with this wonderful report that you also miss us and long to see us and, and love us. And so the real encouragement is for these elders. And I, and I, I hope I'm not over-spiritualizing here when I think about that, that correlation, that analogy made there by Paul where he says the church really represents, or the marriage, the husband-wife marriage really represents the church. Christ and His bride. And, I, and then I think about how elders are His under-shepherds called to love His bride. And you're not all lovable. 
none of us are all lovable. When I say you're not all lovable, I don't mean there's one or two of you that can't be loved. I mean you as an individual are not fully lovable. Have you ever thought of sanctification? What a, what a thing to overwhelm me. As I thought, have I ever asked the Lord to sanctify me for anyone's benefit other than my own? I can't say that I have. But that's what's happening right here. What kind of church do we want to be? Church, you want to be an encouragement to your elders and see them flourish? You want to see your elders flourishing in the things of God and encouraged and and wanting to love you the way Christ loves His church? Then grow in righteousness. Elders, you want to see the church growing in righteousness? Love her. Chase after loving her. I have been, uh, as I close, I have been I have been praying that uh, I've been praying that the Lord would would cause me to think about others. It's, it's a struggle for me to think. I think about myself all the time. It's hard for me to think about others. It's hard for me to put others first. And I, and I suppose that that's common for every human being. We're all fallen. We're all sinners. I suppose that's real for everybody. But it's not as real for some as it is for others. I mean, I, I'm not blind. I can see that there are nice people that are kind to me when, it, when they're sacrificial to, to their own selves. And I'm not that way naturally. And so I've been praying about that. And this stuns me to think that God is calling me, that He would call me, and I think this is right, that He would call me to pray like like Christ Jesus prayed, Lord, sanctify them. So the Lord Jesus asked God the Father about His church, which I am a part of, and He said, sanctify Him, please. That's part of my being born again. It's preordained just like my justification was. And so the thought has overwhelmed me that in my praying that I would be sanctified, it's for the sake of others. It's so that my elders would be encouraged, that they would see the fruits of preaching the Word of God and their struggle through prayer and leading the bride of Christ. It's so that my wife would be encouraged, that she would that that contentment would come to my wife because of my sanctification. It's so that church members would be encouraged and grown. Have you ever thought about the word encourage? I do. Some of y'all that are in my class are getting the same thing twice. How what a powerful thing it is to think that my actions and words can place courage in another. Well, amen. As we close, 
I would exhort you, church, to think about your sanctification unselfishly. Be an encouragement to one another through your own affliction. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.